Thank you to the worship team for leading us in our time of worship through singing. And good morning, everyone. Uh, As most of you know, I'm Pastor Dan, and you may also remember that it was about two months ago that uh, I came up to announce that our family was relocating back to the States. And you may be wondering, why am I still here? (laughs) Um, And so just to clarify some questions many of you had. We will be leaving at the end of June, so we will still have uh, about a little over two more months with you. Um, So we'll look forward to these final couple months, Um, but it's been a privilege to uh, be able to serve here as discipleship pastor at Alliance International Church. Well, today we're going to um, continue through our study in Philippians, and uh, this morning we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Uh, the verses uh, are up on the screen if you want to follow along or if you want to read in your own, own Bible, either low-tech or high-tech. Um, but uh, let's follow along as we read these verses together. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Let's take a moment to pause and to ask God's blessing upon our time this morning. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Lord, as we examine this passage this morning, I pray that you would give us insight into what it means and insight into how we can live it out. So Lord, uh, just be with our time this morning as we study this together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to look at this concept of working out our salvation. So we're going to talk about working out today. Um, Now, I don't know about many of you, but for me, I know that working out is something I should do, but... I find that I'm a bit lazy and I don't do it. Um, now, some of you are awesome. You, you work out regularly. Um, I'm one who knows I should, but I don't. Um, well, it's the same in, in our Christian life. Many of us know that we should be doing something to work out our salvation, but we kind of get lazy spiritually and we don't work out. And so Paul is encouraging the Philippians to work out uh, their salvation. Now, also, most of you know that at different stages in life, actually all of life, we have to work hard, don't we? Some of you are a student, and being a student takes hard work, especially if you're in Hong Kong. Um, You need to work hard to be a good student. Um, Most all of you are working, uh, whether that's in a vocational field or even if you're you're working at homes as stay-at-home mom or, or a housewife or whatever you want to call it. All of, most all of you are in the working field. And in order to do well at your career, your job, it takes hard work. Um, some of you are married or in a relationship. Uh, and as you know, being married or in a relationship takes hard work. Uh, and if you have children, uh, being a parent is not easy. It's, uh, it takes hard work. And so some of you can relate to all of those, and some of you actually maybe are intertwined with multiple roles in what I just listed. You may be married and a parent and working at the same time, or studying all of the above. And so life is hard. We have to work hard to do well at it, to succeed. And it's the same thing in our Christian life, in the Christian walk. Um, it is 
it is difficult at times. We face temptation. We face trials. We face challenges, difficulties. Uh, we face disappointments. We may even question and wonder where God is, why God allowed things to happen. And so um, as Christians, life doesn't necessarily get easier. In fact, the Bible tells us it may get even more difficult and more challenging when we seek to follow Christ. And so Paul is encouraging these Philippians, and by extension us, that we need to work hard at being a Christian. We need to work out our salvation. Now, before we talk about and go into detail of what this, this means for us, I want to spend some time talking about what this doesn't mean. And the reason I want to do that is because there have been some popular misinterpretations or misunderstandings of what Paul is saying. So we're going to first look at a few things of what Paul is not saying before we look at what this means for us. So what does Paul not mean by saying, work out your salvation? Well, first of all, he doesn't mean that we somehow have to earn our salvation. Some people believe that we have to do something to, to kind of earn the salvation that, that we have. The Bible is clear that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So we're not saved by our works. We're saved by what God does in our hearts. It's a gift, which is by grace. So our salvation is a gift. It's not something we can earn. And even if we wanted to earn it, even if we wanted to do something, none of us could earn it anyway. The uh, prophet Isaiah says it this way. He says, all of us, in Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. You see, in other words, what Isaiah is saying is our righteousness, our righteous acts compared to a holy God are like filthy rags. The best that we can offer God, even if we wanted to, even if we were the best human being that ever lived, we would still be tainted because of sin, and it would be like comparatively filthy rags. And so we, we can't earn our salvation. It has to be something that's given to us. Uh, several years ago, when we lived in the States, I was a youth pastor. And uh, I was a youth pastor in a fairly small community, about eight to 10,000 people. And every year, there was this big event that we would put on called the Blueberry Festival. And literally over 100,000 people would descend from all over North America on this little community in north central Indiana called Plymouth, Indiana. And I met people from all over the U.S., from California, Wyoming, Texas, and, and I even met some Canadians um, who made the trek all the way to little Pl Plymouth, uh, Indiana. And this was a huge event. And so you could, it was called the Blueberry Festival because everything was made with blueberries. You could buy blueberry muffins, blueberry pie, blueberry donuts, blueberry pancakes, blueberry ice cream sundaes. And in fact, that's what our church specialized in was we had a booth uh, that sold blueberry ice cream sundaes. And we did that as a fundraiser to fund the youth missions for the year so that youth could go on mission trips. 
And so I was in charge of kind of the whole project, and I was in charge at the end of the day for making sure that um, I would collect all the money that was made and put it in the bank uh, drop box. Uh, I would, during the day, make sure they were stocked with ice cream, blue, homemade blueberry sauce that we had made. Um, and I would also, at the end of the day, collect all of the towels and, and cloths and rags that were used to clean the tabletop because as pe they were scooping and serving, it was uh, summertime, so there'd be melted ice cream, blueberry sauce, water, everything else, and so I would take it home and wash it. Well, two weeks later, um, after the Blueberry Festival, I was doing laundry, and I was putting clothes in the washing machine, and I thought I saw something kind of back behind the washing machine, and it was this little bag. And so I looked over and was wondering, what is that? So I picked it up, and it was, it was tied shut, so I, I opened it, and the moment I opened it, this disgusting stench and odor came out of the bag. And in fact, it, it literally caused me to gag physically and almost, almost made me vomit. I'm not exaggerating. It was one of the most awful smells I've ever smelled in my life. And I was like, oh, what is that? And so I, I, I looked away. I took a breath so I wouldn't smell it. And I held my breath so I wouldn't smell it again. And I looked inside and I knew exactly what it was. I had misplaced a bag that had blueberry sauce and ice cream and water and everything else. And it was tied up in this plastic bag in this moist environment, damp environment. And there was probably mold growing on it, uh, I would assume. <laughs> and it was, it was disgusting. It was gross. And so obviously I, I just threw that away. Well, Later, when I, when I read this passage and I came across this passage, I had a new appreciation for what the prophet Isaiah was saying. You see, the, the best that we can offer God was like that repulsive, dirty, filthy rags that I had smelled. And when we think about that, we think that, man, there's nothing I can do to be saved. I, I can't earn my salvation. The best is like this repulsive, dirty rags. And it seems hopeless, and yet... God provided the perfect solution for our salvation, didn't he? He provided Jesus Christ, who was the perfect uh, man, the perfect person, the Son of God, who was God himself to, to die on the cross as our, our perfect provision for our salvation. And so often people are well-intentioned by saying, well, I know God's done something, but I need to do something too. And, and we want to try to add to what God's already done for us. And in reality, if we throw our filthy rags on, on what Christ has done, we, we will, we'll mess things up. We won't add to it. We'll only mess things up. Um, there's also a, a movie that came out several years ago called The Joy Luck Club. I'm not sure if any of you have seen it, but one, one portion of the film is uh, about this uh, interracial or cross-cultural couple where he is um, fully American, like myself, and uh, she is... Uh, Chinese-American, meaning she was Chinese but born and grew up in America. And her family was more traditional Chinese. And so her family was much more skeptical of them getting together. And so they wanted to get married, but he had to come and meet the family. So he goes to the family's house, and she preps him for all of the cultural things to make sure there's no cultural faux pas or anything, and he doesn't uh, humiliate himself or the family insult the family. So he does pretty well during the greetings. And uh, at dinner time, he does most things pretty well, some some small cult cultural faux pas, but nothing too serious. And 
Now, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is true, so those of you who are more familiar with Chinese culture can let me know afterwards. But according to the movie, um, towards the end of the meal, the, mo- the mother brings out her signature dish, which she is most proud of. And as she brings it out, as she sets it down on the table, and she can't really brag about how good it is, so she'll indirectly brag about how good it is by, by kind of insulting it a little bit because she wants to insult it to set up for him to taste it as the guest of honor and say, this is the best I've ever had. Wow, this is amazing. Okay, so she sets it down and says, oh, this isn't very good. It's, it's not salty enough. You might not like it. And so that was the cue for him to take some. So he does and puts it in his mouth and he's chewing and everyone's looking at him and he's, you know, chewing. Hmm. And they're waiting for the glowing compliment. And all he's, what he says is, you know, if you just add some soy sauce, it would be perfect. So he, he takes a, a jar of soy sauce and pours it all over the dish, ruining the dish. <laughs> and the mother's insulted and everyone's just like, oh, what have you done? <laughs> He was someone who was trying to add to this dish to, to make it in his way. He thought it would be better. But actually, when he added something to it, he messed it up. He made it worse. And he insulted the one who had provided it. When I was a child um, or a teenager, you know, I always grew up being very told, you know, we don't earn our salvation. We don't earn our salvation by works. And I was wondering, well, what's so bad about that? Like, why can't I do something? And I finally realized this concept that if we try to do something, it's almost like an insult saying, yeah, God, thank you, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross, but I think I need to do something too. That wasn't quite good enough. And so um, we cannot earn our salvation, and in fact, God has provided the perfect solution for that, which is Christ. Secondly, uh, what Paul isn't talking about is that we somehow have to earn God's love or favor. All of us as humans grow up with a concept of what's called conditional love. We love certain people, and we don't love certain people. Think about it. Think about the people that come to your mind right now when you say, when I ask, who do you love? Who in your life do you love? I'm sure you can think of some names, some faces. Why do you love those people? I'm sure you can think of reasons because they're this way, because they treat me this way, because we get along. Whatever it is, you have reasons for you, why you love those people. Now think about the people that you don't like very well, you don't get along with very well. Unfortunately, we all can think of those people too. Now what are the reasons why you don't like them? I'm sure you can think of certain reasons, things they've done to hurt you, the way they've talked about you, the things that they, the way that they act, whatever it is, there's reasons why you, you like certain people and you don't like other people. Now there's some people who love you, right? It's people who love you deeply. And there's also people who maybe don't like you. <laughs> and so we go all through life with family, with friends, with classmates, with people in society, people at work, people at church, that we love, we don't love, like, don't like. And this is all conditional love. We have conditions on who we love and who we don't. And yet God loves unconditionally. That means there are no conditions. He loves us just because. He loves us for no reason other than he chooses to love us. 
And God loves everyone who's here today and in this world. He loves everyone simply because we are all created by him in his image. And because of that, you have value, you have worth, and God loves you. Those of us who are followers of Jesus, who have committed our life to following Christ, God loves us with an even more special love, a more intimate love, because we are now his children. And so we have received God's love to the, to the full. In fact, uh, in Psalm 103, it describes it this way. It says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for us, or, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. God's love is so, so deep for us. It's like as high as for, from the ground to the heavens. You know, the universe is so vast, and that is how big and deep God's love is for us. And when it says as far as the east is from the west, the, the east horizon, the west horizon, or whatever direction, you know, the opposite sides, the horizons, that's how he sees us and re- has removed our transgressions or our sins. He sees us now as having the righteousness of Christ. And that's how deep and wide God's love is for us. Romans eight thirty-eight through 39 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you hear that? There is nothing in creation that will be able to separate you from the love of God. I think many of us need to hear that this morning, that there is nothing in creation that will be able to separate you from the love of God. Nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God. That is amazing, isn't it? When I was a a youth pastor here in Hong Kong, uh, for nine years I served in a Chinese church, uh, a Mandarin-speaking church, working with Chinese students who were primarily English-speaking. And one of the challenges that these students often faced was this concept of understanding God's unconditional love. Uh, They grew up very much uh, here in Hong Kong and in more traditional Chinese families in very much a performance-oriented culture. Uh, basically the two things that parents and teachers and people in society expected was good academics and good behavior. So if they were good at academics and they behaved well, they were praised and loved by teachers and, and, and parents. If they didn't perform well academically or didn't behave well, they were not so loved and not so um, highly uh, praised by parents, teachers, and others in authority over them. And so these um, Chinese young people uh, really struggled with this concept uh, of an unconditionally, uh, unconditional love from God. In fact, they carried over their idea of performance-oriented relationships and authority into their relationship with God and really struggled with you know, I, I have to be a good, perfect Christian or God won't love me. I have to do these certain things or, or God won't love me. And something that I, I had to continually remind them of was two truths uh, from Scripture. And the, the first is, and some, of, and some of you may need to hear this today too, there is nothing that you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. 
we often think that, well, if I just do this, if I read my Bible more, if I pray more, if I share my faith more, if I you know, do what's right more, then, then God will love me even more. The reality is his love, we're told, has been made complete in us. He can't love us more. He loves us to the full. And in fact, if you try to impress him, oh, look at the good things I've done. I hate to break it to you, but he's not going to be impressed. He loves you to the full just because of who you are, because of the way he made you, and because you are his child if you're a follower of him. And so there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. You don't need to keep trying. He loves you to the full. The second thing is there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less. Now, some of you may think, but you, Pastor Dan, you don't understand what I've done. I still struggle with sin. I, I still give in to temptation. I have other struggles that I have. I, I even doubt that God exists sometimes. I, I have worry. I have fear. Well, guess what? I have all of those things too. In fact, everyone sitting here has all of those things to one degree or another. None of us are perfect. None of us have fully realized our salvation to where we can say, well, I've made it. I'm fully mature. No, we all struggle with sin. We all have doubts. We all have worry. We all have fear. And we all struggle in various ways. In fact, the Apostle Paul admitted that too. Paul is one of the greatest Christians that ever lived, and yet he said, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, that's what I do. And it's the struggle that we all have. And yet it doesn't affect the way that God loves us. And so there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. And so working out our salvation has nothing to do with earning our salvation, nothing to do with earning God's love or favor. And finally, it has nothing to do with some, the fact that we can somehow lose our salvation if we don't try hard enough. This is actually one of the more common misinterpretations of this passage that, well, if I don't live out my faith enough, then somehow I, I might lose my salvation, so i got to keep trying harder. Scripture is very consistent throughout that if we truly placed our faith in Jesus, if we are truly been saved by him, then that's something that's permanent, that we can rest assured in God's promise. Earlier in Philippians, Paul encourages uh, by saying, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, salvation isn't something that's earned. It's something that's given to us. And if God has begun that work, he's going to see that through. That's a promise that God has given us. And God is faithful to his promises, isn't he? And God, where Scripture says God cannot lie. And so he will be faithful to that promise. Uh, in, in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. 
You see, when we all be, uh, place our faith in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit acts as one, a, a seal. It's like a seal that says, you know, we belong to the King. We belong to the King of the universe. We are God's. And it's also a deposit that guarantees our inheritance. Again, God is making a promise that he will keep. He will uh, guarantee that we will receive our inheritance. And then finally, uh, just another passage uh, in the Gospel of John. This is what Jesus says. He says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hands. My Father, who has given to me, given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Here, Jesus makes this declaration that I give them eternal life. I give you eternal life. And if you have that, you will never perish. And he, he says, as the Son of God, I have you in my hand. And there is no one, nothing that can take you from my hand. And just to, to be double rest assured that you're secure in Christ's hand, he says, and even my Father, who's greater than all, has you in his hand as well. And no one can take you from my Father's hand. So here you have God the Son and God the Father doubly protecting you, and you can rest assured in your salvation. So if these are the things that Paul is not talking about, then what does it mean when Paul says, work out your salvation? Well, Paul uses this interesting play on words here, not just in our English translations, but in the original Greek as well, uh, where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. So we are to work out as God works in us. We're to work out as God works in us. Now, the Greek word for workout is, um, the root word is <laughs> ergazomai, something like that. <laughs> I haven't taken Greek for many years, um, uh, but uh, ergazomai. And the kat at the beginning is an emphatic, it's a preposition that gives emphasis. Okay, So katagazomai means to produce, to accomplish, to bring about, to do something. Okay, in other words, that you, that you have a function, something has a function, and that you are to live out, do out, produce whatever that function is. Okay, um, we have many things in this room that have a function. Uh, we have lights, uh, we have a sound system that amplifies sound, we have, most of you have a, some sort of mobile device probably, um, that has a function. Um, even getting here, most of you came by transport, such as car, train, boat. Now, what do all of these things need that they have in common that they need in order to do their function? Energy. That's right. And you can maybe guess uh, what that second Greek word, energeo, <laughs> means. Um, as it looks like the word for energy, right? And that's exactly what it means. To be operative, be at work, to put forth power. And so what Paul is saying is we have a function, okay? We, we have something that he's, we are called to do, but we can only do that if we have the energy to do it. 
If I were to just hold up a light bulb here, <laughs> I didn't have one, but if I were to hold up a light bulb, would, would, would it be able to produce light? No. It would be have to hook up to a, uh, some sort of energy. Um, if I were to unplug the sound system, would the sound system be able to amplify sound? No, it needs to be plugged in to have a source of energy in order to do what it was uh, meant to do. And so we are in the same way that when Paul says we are to work out our salvation, we, are, we have a role, we have a function, we have something that God wants us to do. He wants us to live out our faith, but we can only do that as God is at work in us. Paul uses um, the same word, energeo, uh, speaking of God's energy source, in Galatians 2, verse 8, he says, For God, who is at work in the ministry of Peter, or who was the energeo in the ministry of Peter, as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. So here you have Peter, Paul, not Mary, because the band hasn't been formed yet. We have Peter, Peter and Paul. <laughs> Two of you got that. Peter and Paul, who, great men of God, and Paul says, looking at Peter, he's saying, man, God is really at work in his ministry. And he, he's reflecting on himself, and he's saying, God is really at work in my ministry. Now, how can Paul say something like that? How can he know that God was at work in each of their ministries? Does this mean that Peter and Paul, as great men of God, were kind of isolated somewhere in a monastery or, or at their home, and they just spent all day praying, reading scripture, fasting, and they were there 24 hours, 24 hours, seven days a week? Would that be how he could know that, wow, God's really at work? No. They weren't isolated. They were out doing what God had called them to do. They were out preaching the gospel. They were out helping the poor and the needy. They were taking care of widows and orphans. They were healing the sick. They were um, making a positive impact in society. And so they had that energy of God in them, but it was only evident when they lived that out, when they actually did what their function was, what God was wanting them to do. And so this idea of working out as God works in us, we are to, in other words, we're to respond to God's work in our life. We're to respond to that energy that God gives us. And we're to, we're to live out our faith. We're to, to go and do it. We're to put it into practice. And when we fall down, when we fail, when we mess up, we get up and we, we keep going. And so Paul adds a phrase to this um, before we, we get to the conclusion. Paul says, we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're to live out our faith, but to do it with fear and trembling. Uh, in Psalm 2, we're told that we are to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Well, what does that mean? Well, I believe this follows Paul's thoughts on humility. Earlier in chapter 2, he says, that we are to not only look out to our own interests, but to the interests of others. We are to consider others better than ourselves. And he goes on to give Jesus, uh, to give the, the greatest example of humility, which was Jesus. Because Jesus was the God of the universe, the King of the universe, who comes down uh, to our galaxy, into our solar system, to our planet, 
And not just as a human being, but as a servant who in that culture would have been the lowest human being in that culture. It says he came and took on the nature of a servant. And if we even look back and we think about when Jesus was born, he was born to lowly parents at a lowly time. And his first bed was a feeding trough, (laughs) probably a stone cold, gross, filled with saliva, animal saliva feeding trough. That's where he laid, the king of the universe. And he, exa- he, he gave the greatest example of humility. And as he lived his life, he was a lowly carpenter, and he decided to, he, he willingly submitted himself to go to the cross, to die for us, to take on that pain and suffering. And so he's the ultimate example of someone who said, God, I surrender myself to you. Use me however you want. We too need to, as we work out our salvation, we need to have the same humility. That's exactly what Paul says. We're to, our, your attitude should be the same as Christ. We're to have that same humility. As we work out our salvation, we often might think of just our, ourselves. You know, well, I need to read the Bible more and pray more. And that's, that's good. But we also have, this is in the context of, of community. And there's two parts of community. One is, we we encourage one another in community. One of the things that I'm going to miss the most about uh, being here at AIC is our community group and uh, also um, the men's fellowship that I, that I have. Uh, I meet regularly with a couple men on, on Fridays. And it's these intimate times where we can do life together and share about life. We can encourage one another, and that's the good side of community. But there's another side of community in which there's there's conflict, there's tension, there's broken relationships. And so working out your salvation is in the context of that community where we grow spiritually, but we also work out what it means to live the Christian life, which means there are times where we might have to, out of humility, go to someone and say, I'm so sorry for what I, what I said. That was not very nice and hurtful. Please forgive me. Or I'm so sorry for what I've done. That was... That was not right of me. Please forgive me. And so out of humility, we may need to ask for forgiveness. We also, out of humility, may need to to go to someone and let them know that we forgive them. We can acknowledge that whatever was said or done hurt, but to say with genuineness that I, I forgive you and I love you as a brother or sister in Christ. And so out of humility, it means that we need to lay down our agendas, lay down our perspective for the benefit of others and to say, God, help me to be humble, recognizing that we're not worthy of anything. We're not worthy of our salvation, yet God still loves us. Help us to live that out in humility. And Christ obviously is our model. He's our example. He is the one we're to imitate. We are to model ourselves after him. For many, I've been a Christian for most of my life and for so many years, I would compare myself to other Christians. And I would always try to be a better Christian. If I could only be a better Christian, if I could only read my Bible as much as he does, or if I could only have the prayer life that she has, or, man, if I could only share my faith like he or she does, or, oh, man, if I could fast that many times, I would be so much better off spiritually. And I would compare myself 
to others. But our goal working out our salvation is not to imitate other Christians. Because even if we imitated the best Christian, the bar is so low. That's, that's, that's so low. We are to imitate Christ. He is our model. He's our example. He's the one we are to strive to be like. And so working out your salvation means that we strive to be like Christ. We strive to be like him. We say, God, please help me to have the attitude of Christ. Please help me to have the words of Christ. Please help me to have the humility of Christ. Please help me to have the actions of Christ. He is the one that we should strive to be like. Well, Paul concludes his thoughts here by saying that it's we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. You see, God works in us so that we can live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus in order that God can glorify himself through us. And you see, this theme is all throughout Scripture that life is all about him. It's all about bringing praise and glory to God. It's about his purpose in life, not ours. And so the challenge and and question for us today is, are we willing and ready to work out our salvation? Do we recognize and understand that if we're a follower of Christ, God's at work in us. He's at work in you. You don't have to go through the Christian life alone. You have the power of the Holy Spirit within you. And as he's working in you, he wants you to to live out your faith, to, to live out the function and purpose that God created you to have, which is to represent him and reflect him to a world that desperately needs to know Christ. And he wants to glorify himself in and through you. So are you willing to work out your salvation today? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that that you give us salvation as a free gift. Lord, that you have given it because of your grace and that you love us so much because we are created in your image. And Lord, we are created to reflect you. And so Lord, I pray there may be those here today who haven't trusted you yet as their Lord and Savior. Maybe they haven't received your salvation. God, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, Lord that you would grant them your grace, your peace, your love, and that they would have new life in you. Lord, there's many sitting here today who are Christians, who are followers of you, and yet may be discouraged, may be disappointed, may be facing a difficult time in life. Lord, I pray that you would renew their salvation, that you would strengthen your people, and that you would help each of us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, recognizing that it's you who works in us, and that we can live out our faith so that it can bring you all the praise and glory. So Lord, we just lay ourselves at your feet. We say, God, use us however you want. Lord, we want to represent you today throughout this week and in this coming year and through the rest of our lives so that you may be magnified in us and through us all for your name and glory. So Lord, we dedicate ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.